So how many of you remember the day you got your driver's license? Hold on, I gotta get my notes going the right direction. Most of us remember that we didn't turn 16 and on our 16th birthday they just sent us the mail saying, you get to drive, right? No, we had to take a class. We had to probably sit in one of those big semi-truck simulators. Do you guys still have to do that? No simulator? You have to take a test, right? A written test. You have to practice. You have to try not to make your parents have a heart attack. Um, I don't know if I succeeded in that one. Um, and then we have to prove that not only do we know how to drive, know all the rules of driving, we actually have to go and some person has to sit in a car with us to make sure that we know how to drive, right? And so by doing several different steps of taking a written test and going, we can prove that we know what we're doing, that we know how to drive. Now, I can tell you, and my husband can tell you, I could take that written test probably to this day. And I don't, I think I might have gotten one wrong, and even at that, I was mad that I got one wrong. However, when it came to the actual driving test, that gentleman was really, really, really nice to me, and I should not have passed. <laughs> I think you can get 26 points without failing, and I think I got 25 points and I probably should have, I didn't have to parallel park because I almost hit the car in front of, like it was bad. It was really, really bad. So, but how many of us get all nervous when we say test? How many of you like to take tests? Some of us, there's very few of us, right, that like to actually take a test. Well, I'm here to talk about Abraham. Well, I'm not I guess I was volunteered. Jim said he was going to be gone this weekend, and somebody in our staff meeting said, well, Amanda can do it. And I said, well, what are we talking about? Where will we be at Genesis? He goes, Isaac offering, or Abraham offering Isaac. I'm like, okay, let me think about it. I go home for two days, and I come back, and I go, well, I have some things to say, more like I have some questions. This is a familiar passage to most of us. We've learned about it since we were little, right? It's been part of our Sunday school lessons. You've probably heard about it in a Bible study and all of those things. But I said, you know what? I have questions. And most of us, while I was reading, probably had two things to say. Why would God ask Abraham? I'm going to get that wrong all morning. Why would God ask Abraham to offer Isaac? That seems pretty audacious. Second of all, more important to me, God, are you ever going to make me do something that crazy? And that makes me nervous because I go, I don't know that I could, right? That's what we're really trying to get to is, God, make sure that when you ask me to do something, it doesn't look like that. Well, let's start with that first question as to why. And it says in that first verse, after all these things, God tested Abraham. Now, when we think about tests, we all get nervous, but really the definition of a test is a procedure intended to establish the quality, performance, or reliability of something. Well, that triggers, that reminds me, the reliability. 
See, up to this point, we've been talking about, Jim's been sharing, God's looking for partners, right? And we can see over the last three to four chapters where God and Abraham are in conversation. They meet at certain spots, and God says, this is what we're going to do next. This is where we're going to go next. This is the blessing that I'm giving you, right? He sees that they're a partnership. And now, after last week, which I'm glad Jim wasn't gone last week, because that was, this one's a little easier. <laughs> um, we see that God says, guess what? Remember, I gave you this promise, but I need to know that you know that I know that you're the guy, that you're the one that I want to partner with. I think you're the one I want to partner with, but do you know that you're the one that wants to partner with me? And so he tests him. Did Abraham pass the test? That first question was, take your son and sacrifice him. Does Abraham actually pass the test? Or are we looking at the test the wrong way? Are we looking at the wrong test? Sometimes, tests aren't to get us, trick us, or tempt us, or to um, surprise us, right? So when you went to college or high school, and you took a test, did you know, other than like a surprise test or a test at the beginning of the year, did you know that the test was coming? When we went to get our driver's license, did we know that the test was coming? Yeah, we did, right? So in testing, there's kind of twofold. One, it's to prove that we know who we are or what we know. We know the content. Was it also for the professor or the teacher or whoever to say, hey, I've shared my information with you. I've explained the process to you. We've gone over the material. Now I need to know that I'm doing a good job. And so sometimes when we, when, <clears throat> when we say we're getting tested, it's not just what we know or what we think we know or what we want to know, but it's also to say that the professor or the teacher is doing a good job right? When I look at it that way, it doesn't scare me so much, does it? So we're going to continue on and say, okay, does Abraham pass the test? So I got thinking testing, well, we don't talk about this a lot in the Bible. We talk about Jesus's love. We talk about like partnering with God, but testing throughout the scripture is in there quite a bit. God tests us and shows God's tests show up throughout Scripture. In Deuteronomy, it says, so that he might humble you and test you to know your heart. In Judges, I did this to test Israel and to see whether or not they would keep the, Lord, the Lord's ways. David writes, I know, my God, that you test the heart and that you are pleased with what is right. David also writes, search me, and God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. In the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians says, Instead, just as we have been proved or tested by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. God is not, 
not to please people, but rather God, who examines our hearts. So God is doing the same thing. He wants to test Abraham to do a double check. I'm about to do something really, really big. You know what that thing is. And this is the person, Isaac is the person that represents all those big things, right? Are you going to be a reliable partner? So God tests us, A, to know our hearts, to see if we're a reliable partner. And then we have to remind ourselves that God is a good teacher. He's not going to leave us out here. He's not going to surprise us with our test. He wants us to prepare for it, and he's with us throughout that whole time. God really wants us to pass that test, doesn't he? Or the tests that we might have. So we get back into scripture. If you want to turn to Genesis 22, we're going to get there again. We're going to go back into Genesis. But first, I want to um, share a story about a friend of mine. Um, Stephanie is about five, six years older than me, and so she was a babysitter of mine. They, we grew up in the same church, um, a youth mentor of mine. She lost her dad when she was young. She's the oldest of three kids. Um, she went on to Bible college. She, um, Stephanie was, like, she'd come back and do youth work with us and stuff like that, and then I happened to go to the same college that Stephanie did, so we hung out a lot in, in college as well. She was done, I was going. And I don't ever remember a conversation with Stephanie that did not involve what God was doing in our lives or something cool or exciting or prayer. A lot of times we'd gather, they would open their home um, to having us over. Um, she met Al in college and they got married. And then after they got married, they, um, they worked full time, but then they volunteered at the church. They led young adult ministry. Steph, could, she can play and sing, so she'd be on the worship team. And so she just had this passion for God. Um, and you, could, you can see it, you can hear it when you talk to her. Um, probably in about 2002, 2001, 2002, Steph and Al actually moved to Stevens Point and planted a church. Um, and there they bought a house, and they started a family. Um, when their kids were in third grade and fifth grade, God said, okay, it's time. Sell everything, sell your house. You're going to be missionaries. Now, that's not like a surprise because her husband Al and her have been praying about this for a long time. They were going to become missionaries and they were going to pick up their entire family. Now, most of you know I have little kids about that same age. Um, and third and fifth grade are such pivotal times. You're going into middle school it's fun. There's lots of things your kids can get involved in. And God said, sell everything. Let's be missionaries to Central Asia. Now, Central Asia is not safe sometimes. And specifically, it's not legal there to be a practicing Christian. And so it has to be very private with what they do. In fact, that's why I'm telling you Central Asia, because I don't want to tell you where they are. In fact, yeah. Um, Steph and Al have been tested throughout their lives, and they've said yes, God, to the next thing. Now, if you would have told Steph at 16, hey, you're going to sell all your things, and you're going to move far, far away, that would blow us away, wouldn't it? But God said, okay, take this little step, and then take this little step, and then take this little step. 
and sacrifice those things that you might put in between me and you so that when the time comes, we can do something big. Now, this summer, I just found out that Al and Steph are coming home for a visit, and their now fifth grader is now a senior in high school, and she'll be going off to college to the same school that Al and Steph met at in the fall to start her own life of testing and partnering with God. And so I hope that we can meet Steph <laughs> and Al this summer. Um, but I just, that when I think of her life, I think of this idea of testing and God partnering with her throughout life. You see, it isn't just that Abraham is willing to give up his son. It's how we see that Abraham partners with God throughout the whole test. So let's jump back in. This is my favorite part. There's some little words in here that I think are really, really exciting. I just got to find them. Okay, so let's jump back in. Right there in verse 2, you know, it's reminding Abraham of which son. So Isaac, take your son. We recognize that you love your son. We all love our kids, right? And offer him up on the mountain that I shall show you. Shall show you provides that he doesn't know where he's going, right? Take all these things and start out on a journey. And as you're going, I will show you where to go. That's test number one, right? Sometimes we don't get all the details. And I think this is like the second time that Abraham has been told that when he was back in his hometown, God said, pick up your things and go to where I will tell you to go. And so we read that in the Hebrews thing. So we get down here to the end of verse 5. Here's test number 2, where Abraham is talking to the servants that came with him. I'm sorry, but my eyeballs must be getting, you know, I'm 43. And you're normally not supposed to tell people what your age is. But clearly I need a large print Bible. <laughs> I am so sorry. Oh, okay, on the third day, let's see here. Where are we? Verse 5. Then Abram said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey, and the boy and I will go over there, and we will worship, and then we will return. Okay, so is he actually going to offer Isaac, or does, what does he think at this point? Because he thinks they're coming back. Okay, God, I'm still sitting with this one. Like, okay, what does Abraham think at this point? Either he has to offer him and God can bring him back to life, which is what the Hebrews text tells us, which is fantastic, because clearly we have questions. But he knows and trusts his God that they're going to come back. I just find that really exciting. Okay, we get down to, let's see here. Verse 8. Okay, skip down to verse 8 here. Well, even a little bit before that. So let's start with verse 7 here. Isaac says to his father, as they've, you know, collected all the things and they're going on, Isaac says, God, or Isaac says, Father, here I am. He says, well, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Now, this is just a little side note. Abraham and Isaac and their family worship enough that Isaac knows what it needs to, be wor- to take for worship. Isaac, the son, practices worship with his family. Do our kids, do our family know what it takes to worship when we come to worship? That's just my little extra. But they know what it means to worship. They know what it means to come and worship. And then he says his response is, okay, you know that we need A and we need B and we, we don't have C or it doesn't look like we have C. And God's response, or Abraham's response is, God will provide. And this part right here where it says God will provide, I kind of bring that back to when God and Abraham were negotiating over the amount of people that were righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe this is where Abraham's saying, God, you're, you're still going to provide. I still have faith. I still trust that maybe we're still in partnership, right? He's, I think that's, kind of, that's what I think about it. We know that Isaac represents so much more than just his beloved son. He, re- he represents the future and the promises that God had made. But let's take a little minute here, and now we get into the really, really like intense part. And sometimes I think that while the Bible has lots and lots of little details, like we will come back to worship, when I get really into it and I want some emotion, we don't get any emotion. Because I can guarantee you that as... Isaac is being bound, and Abraham's making that, I'm guessing that Abram is ugly crying by this point, because that's intense. This is a really, really, really intense passage. But let's not discredit the faith of Isaac. Now, we're guessing that Isaac, he's not little. He's not five, six, seven. We're probably not a teenager, guessing maybe between the ages of nine and 12, when most boys are realizing, hey, I'm about one to two years from being able to take on my dad, right? But Isaac just accepts his, accepts his fate, accepts his role being a sacrifice. And that, again, we can, we can dive into that on another day, right? Thinking of what Isaac's faith looks like in this picture. But it doesn't say that he beat his dad up. It doesn't say that he punched his dad. It doesn't say that he ran away from the altar. He laid down, and he offered himself as well, right? He was old enough to probably run away. So in the midst of the intenseness, right, we see that Isaac trusts his father and ultimately trusts God. We see that Abraham is walking in the steps of God, connecting with God, saying, okay, this is the place, Mount Moriah is the place. This is the place we're going to continue to worship. Worship comes with sacrifice. We know that worship is a regular part of their practice. We know that they're in conversation with God. And in mid-swing, the angel of the Lord says, stop, stop, do not lay a hand on that boy. At this point, I go, God, do I know you well enough to stop what I'm doing? Do we intently know God to wait for his direction? 
that we would stop mid-swing. Because we so clearly want to lay out a plan and say, this is God's plan, and this is what God wants me to do. But Abraham doesn't say, but God, you told me to do this. He stops. God said, stop what you're doing. I trust you. You fear me. You know me. I think that this part of the, the scripture also for, our, for the original context, everybody in the room went, what? Here is a God who does not want us to sacrifice humans. Because this was a cultural thing. There were lots and lots of places where they did sacri- human sacrifice, they did ch- children's sacrifice. We see throughout the Old Testament where God says, stop following in the ways of Baal. Stop following in, you know, follow me, do the things that I've asked you to do, follow the ways of your God, because this is one of those places where they go, they expected him to finish this out. Remember back when early creation, I asked Jim the other day, like, who were, it was the, God, the saltwater gods and the freshwater gods, and they were constantly fighting, and all of the gods of that time would have been about sacrifice, would have been about killing their brothers or their sisters or their mothers. Or, and so for God to say, don't lay a hand on him, that's huge. That's saying, hey, this God is different. This one true God is the real deal. And he wants me to be his partner? That's awesome. So we have the test. We know that it's a test. We see Abraham walking in the steps of his faith, connecting with God on a regular basis. So when we say, did Abraham pass the test? Well, he didn't necessarily pass the first test. But when we look at it, we see that he passed lots of little tests. And it wasn't just that he needed to offer that one thing that he held so dear but it was that he was in communication and connection with God throughout. If you are a licensed practitioner of some sort, you went to school and you had to get a license in order to complete your job or do your job, what was it like the day you got the results of your test? You were a lawyer or a doctor and it wasn't, or a fireman, What is it like the day you get your results? Because a test isn't just that you have to take the test and do the test, but there's results at the end, right? Now, for me, like I had mentioned, I'm a great test taker, and so I have very high expectations of what my test results could be. However, I can imagine that if you've done six to eight years of study and you get that that plaque that says, hey, I get to be a doctor now. They trust me to be a doctor. I can imagine that that day is pretty special. Right? I would say so. At this point, you guys are all supposed to get up and move around, and I'm supposed to remind you to not have popcorn butts. This is the difference between little kids and adults. (laughs) Right? Um, The hardest part is you all keep your expressions inside. Last night, my family and I watched a movie called Greater, and it's one of those feel-good um, sports movies. 
Um, it's based on a true story. And so when we were done with it, I was like, Jeff, this is kind of an answer to prayer because I felt like I needed one more illustration. And so Greater is a story. It depicts the life of this gentleman named Brandon Burlesworth. He's from Harrison, Arkansas. Brandon was kind of a nobody. He was a little chubby, kind of really chubby in middle school. And he makes a horrible play on the football field. And his football coach says, you will never play for me again. And the high school coach watched this in the movie. And the high school coach kind of takes him under his wing. He works really, really hard to be a good high school football player. But he's just not quite the right size. A linebacker? Is that what we are? Maybe. He's not quite the right size. And so he has this goal and this dream to play for the Arkansas Razorbacks. And so he doesn't get a scholarship, but you can walk on and do tryouts. And so the movie continues through his life, um, and he's a man of faith. He talks about, well, God didn't make me that size, but I'm going to keep working at it. And it, it shows him going to Bible studies. It shows him abstaining from alcohol. It shows his character of how hard he's going to work. He does everything his coaches say. He's the first one there. He's the last one to leave. And he works really, really hard. We love those kinds of stories. Brandon Burlesworth walked on at Arkansas. He played for Arkansas for, from 1995 to 1998. His senior year, they had a coaching change. And anytime you have a coaching change, you're going to have starter changes. And he rallied the three or four guys around him, and they practiced on their own in order to be able to change the trajectory. And they watched, the movie depicts how well he kind of captained his team. That last year, his senior year, he was, what is it, um, first round All-American, which positioned him to be eligible for the NFL draft. Now, if you know anything about our family, we like football and we have a team we support, but we really like the draft at my house. <laughs> we watch it all. There's several magazines that, that sit in our home every year, every season. We love watching the NFL draft. It's kind of one of those things where it's that you've worked hard, you've worked hard, you've worked hard, and now this is what I get to work for. Brandon Burlesworth was um, drafted in the third round in 1999 to the Indianapolis Colts. Um, three weeks before he had to report, he died in a car accident. Mid-swing. God called him home. Right? Mid-swing. And the movie does such a great job. I wanted to show a clip, but my clip was like five and a half minutes long. And I'm like, well, you can go home and watch it. It's great. I mean, the boys enjoyed it. Um, you know, the family struggles with how... Does God let these things happen? But that's not the end of Brandon's story. At the end, we love watching those movies because they usually show clips of like um, the real life person. Um, and then they shared that they've started the Brandon Burlesworth Foundation where they give a scholarship to a student who is walking on for football. They've started a, a seeing eye uh, for corrective lenses because at some point in the movie he can't see the numbers, so he doesn't know who he's supposed to be covering, and so he has to wear these goofy glasses. Um, 
His brother is still coaching and combining football camps with their faith. And so to see that legacy of him passing the test in his life but not seeing the fruit of it is sometimes what we have to do. Those are sometimes the results of what we do and the hard work that we do and the partnering that we do with God. Sometimes we don't get to see the end. And we see that with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God promises Abraham, I will bless you to the numerous stars in the sand. And yet we see a Brandon Burlesworth or my friend Stephanie, right? Abraham didn't know them, but look at us here thousands of years later, still being blessed by what Abraham did that day. And so we look at the results, the results of taking the test, passing the test. We see that God is revealed as Yahweh Jireh, or when I was little, it was called Jehovah Jireh, right? And I will only sing one line of it, Jehovah Jireh. My provider, his grace is sufficient for me. However, the word Jehovah wasn't there. It was Yahweh, right? God provides. And we can reflect on our lives when God has provided for us. We see that the ram was provided on Isaac's behalf. This is the first time that we see substitutionary atonement, where God is going to say, you know what? A ram or a goat is good enough for your sacrifice. It should be you being punished, but I will take that as your punishment. And then we get to Jesus, who is our ultimate substitutionary atonement, that he can take our sins. And so this is that first glimpse of that. And we see the covenant blessing that your, through your offspring, the nations will be blessed. Now, most of us are not going to be offered, asked to offer our kids as a sacrifice. And most of us are not going to be asked to sell everything and go to Central Asia. And most of us are probably not going to the NFL anytime soon. Um, I'd like to close with one story. Um, Beth Guckenberger wrote this book. She's a... a they founded back-to-back ministries. She's an advocate for children in vulnerable situations, and they've been missionaries to Mexico. They now live in Ohio. Um, and so she writes, um, this is an experience that they had in Mexico. As we entered Maria's house, she proudly introduced us to her two elementary children, quick to share their academic success, and credit them for their hard work. When she finished, someone asked how she found out about the center. She goes, that's a funny story. One of the staff met her while walking in the community, encouraged her to enroll her children in tutoring classes. She distrusted Americans and due to her illiteracy, feared embarrassment. If she could not fill out forms, she, she successfully avoided the issue for a while. But with her son falling behind in school, she eventually had nowhere else to turn. One afternoon, she came to the community center, but instead of standing outside the class, but insisted on standing outside the classroom while her children participated. 
Although this meant long hours in the hot sun, she was concerned for her children's safety. Sandy, one of the teachers, sensed Maria listening to her teaching throughout the window. The next day, she left Maria a chair outside the door, a kind gesture so she could sit while the children were in class. Instead of resting, Maria sat on the edge of her seat. Sandy recognized her attentiveness as if learning the material for the first time. The next morning, on her way into the classroom, Sandy quietly dropped a notebook on Maria's seat. As Maria told it, the lessons began to make sense. She, she strung together letters to make words and then words to read sentences. Eventually, she attended parenting classes where she learned about cooking, finances, and faith. I don't want you to tell me what God says about me anymore. Now I can read. Give me a Bible. I want to find out for myself. That was three years ago, and now I have been baptized. I share my faith journey regularly with my extended family and neighbors. So oftentimes, we think that this sacrifice or this test has to be monumental. But how often do we just need to set out a chair or a notebook? As we wrestle with where God is testing us, I don't think we need to look around every little corner and go, okay, God, am I going to pass today? But just think of how God is partnering with you throughout your week so that you actually pass the test. He wants us to pass that test. So as we continue to worship today, God's looking for partners. What is that thing that you're holding dear to you that is more important than what he wants to do, that you might have to let go. And ask him to show you how do you do that, because he wants us to pass that test. Let it be so.